All right, we hope that you were able to enjoy that worship set and are once again so glad that you've chosen to join us for our service today. Now today what we're doing is we're actually concluding our series. What a wonderful series it's been, uh, which has been called Abide, the power and beauty of God's Word. And we hope that over the course of this series that you've been able to gain a greater appreciation for the Word of God, its importance in your life, um, in your life, and also how you're to interact with it on a daily basis so that it might strengthen you, encourage you, and also illuminate how you're to walk with God in a manner that's holy, set apart, and pleasing to Him. And so today what we're doing by finishing this series is we're focusing on this very important idea that the Word of God keeps us from evil that the word of God keeps us from evil. And what we know is that we serve a holy and a righteous God. And because we do, we know that there is no evil in him. And if we're going to be in relationship with him, what it means is that we're turning away from everything that's not evil in our sights, but evil in his. And so what we are doing is we're gaining an understanding of an, an appreciation and an appreciation of how God's word actually keeps us from evil. What we're going to do is we're going to continue to focus in the Gospel of John and focus really on a prayer that Jesus prayed for his church and when he was getting ready to go to the cross and ultimately fulfill the work of his earthly ministry and offering his own life laid down for the sins and the evil that we committed against God so that he might save us through his sacrificial work, death, burial, and resurrection at that cross. And so today the focus statement is going to be this, that the Father's words sanctify us and send us away from evil and into mission. That the Father's words sanctify us and send us away from evil and into mission. And so we're going to break this message down into three parts today. First, understanding the context of Jesus' high priestly prayer. Secondly, understanding the fact that Christ does, in fact, through his word, sanctify us. And then finally, we're going to end with understanding how his word and abiding in it he uses it to send us. So before we do anything else, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us today. And we thank you that through that word, you not only sanctify us, meaning to set us apart to yourself, but you also send us into your holy mission. And God, we're asking that today, that by this word, you would help us to not only keep us from evil, but give us your heart as we go into your mission field. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you have a Bible today, let's open to John chapter 17, and we're going to start in verse 6. We're going to read the passage first, and then I'm going to start by giving you context for what you're reading, that before we get into the realities of God sanctifying us and sending us into his mission by his word. It says this in verse 6, this is Jesus praying with his disciples, and he says, I have manifested... And again, when Jesus is praying, obviously, just as we talk to the Father through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, in this same instance, Jesus, when he was praying, was talking to the Father by the person or through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so talking to the Father, he says this in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. 
for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. <clears throat> um, and of course, we know that name was Jesus. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, talking about Judas, who betrayed Jesus, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, therefore, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, meaning set myself apart, that they also may be sanctified, set apart in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so what we see is that this is Jesus speaking and concluding what is commonly known as the farewell discourse and the farewell discourse is him summarizing his ministry and really getting the church ready for his departure but also the arrival of the person the third person of the trinity the holy spirit who will help them as agents of jesus to fulfill his ongoing mission throughout history until his return through the church. You can find his final farewell discourse in John 14 through 17. And last week's discussion of the true vine was the middle section of that discourse. If you've not listened to it, please go back and hear the uh, message that Pastor Cole preached. This could discourse occurs in John's gospel immediately following the Last Supper, the night before the crucifixion, just before Jesus' arrest. And chapter 17 is the section of that discourse that takes the form of a prayer and is often called the high priestly prayer, meaning Jesus functioning as the high priest, the mediator between all of humanity and a holy, righteous God. It's called that high priestly prayer because Jesus is communicating to the Father on humanity's behalf, but not just humanity's behalf, but his church's behalf specifically starting with his disciples who are walking with him, following with him, seeing what he said, hearing what he said, seeing what he did, and then following in those same actions themselves. And then not only for his early disciples, but also all the church that would follow. All of us who believed his words and have received his message that have been passed down through their ministry. 
So it can, this passage, this John 17, is called the high priestly prayer, but it could also be called Christ's prayer for the church. What we see is that in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke, the first three synoptic gospels, the central component of Jesus' prayers was the more private and painful acceptance of God's will in the form of a cup of suffering that would ultimately culminate in him going to the cross to sacrifice himself for our sins. There in those sections, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that only Peter, James, and John appear to be close enough to hear Jesus' prayers. In John's gospel, however, the central component of Jesus' final prayers that are recorded happen before the garden while he prays in front of all of his disciples. And so in this way, the set of prayers takes on more of a teaching function and delivers doctrine along with the heartfelt cries of the Lord Jesus himself. One of the central themes of the theological work of the Gospel of John is the glory of God, otherwise known by the Greek word doxa, and is intertwining with the word logos, the word that we've talked about we need to abide in, that we started this whole series with, the word of God, the logos of God, intertwining with the glory of God. And this theme is introduced as early as John 1.14, where we read that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we've seen how God expressed his grace and truth through his son, Jesus Christ, by the word that he ministered, lived, and preached during his earthly ministry. Yet it runs throughout of, of the Gospel of John, running as late as John 21, 19, where Peter's death is seen as a way of also glorifying God. So ultimately, the Word of God leads to the mission of God by which we glorify God. And this theme of glory and its interconnection with God's Word in Revelation is an important component of Christ's majestic prayer for the church that we just read in John 17. Another central theme of the book of John, though, is drawn out in chapter 17. It's the contrast between the world and Christ as well as the world and Christ's followers. Remember that Jesus said that he is not of this world, but just as he's not of this world, so also his followers, his disciples, would not be of this world either. That means you and that means me. And this theme is introduced in John, in John 1, verses 10 and 13, in that the word came into the world, but the world did not recognize its own creator. In chapter 17, however, this contrast is brought to a head in the prayer for Jesus' disciples who are not of the world, just as he's not of the world. Love and unity are basically going to be the mark of those who are not of this world and is featured significantly in the book of John, and it makes their, its appearance in the high priestly prayer that Jesus just prayed. Christ desires ultimately the same unity, the same unity in love between him and the Father to be present between him and his disciples. And this unity of love is presented as a central desire of the heart of Christ and a key requirement for the sanctification of the church, meaning that the church would be taken out of the world, 
sanctified or set apart to God and live differently than the world by choosing to love God, love one another, and love those around them in a way that is truly supernatural. And in John's gospel, this prayer serves not only as the climax of the farewell discourse of Jesus, but it also serves as a form of teaching to his disciples, not only to the 12, but also to you and I who are following him today. So from this point on, the story unfolds, meaning the rest of John unfolds the necessary fulfillment of the predictions of Christ's suffering and his teaching ministry as it has ultimately come to its completion. So he finishes teaching with this high priestly prayer and then ultimately goes to the cross to fulfill all that was written about him in the scripture so that he could become the savior of the world. The contrast, though, between the world and Christ, between the glory of God and the evil of this world, is made even more clear in this climactic prayer. And in this prayer, Christ prays for three things, unity, for glory, and for protection of his people. In the coming chapters, ultimately, the world will, will divide rather than unite, humiliate Christ and his people rather than glorify him and destroy even the body, the physical body of Christ rather than protecting and honoring him as Lord. And it's widely accepted that the Gospel of John was written later than the Synoptic Gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and that the author had some access to the Gospels but felt free to write independently of them. From this, it may be hypothesized that John, the Apostle John, one of the 12 disciples who was writing, was being used by God to do three things. Number one, to address the needs of a different audience, particularly non-Jewish seekers who the gospel was getting to, the Gentile world of that time who was starting to hear the word of God. Number two, John was being used to share elements of Christ's person, teaching, and work that the other gospels didn't pre um, um, present or emphasize. And then number three, John was being used to present a more theologically oriented rather than biographically or historically oriented work. This is all the context of this high priestly prayer that Jesus is praying here. Now, what is the meat of that word? What is the meat of that prayer when Jesus prayed it? Well, ultimately, Jesus was praying a prayer by which God would sanctify us or set us apart by his word in which we choose to abide. And as we abide in God's word, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, sanctifies us, works in our hearts, works in our minds, works in our spirits to set us apart to God himself. And to sanctify us means to set us apart, to look like Jesus, and ultimately fulfill his glorious purposes in our lives. And I love that term, glorious purposes. It reminds me, uh, if you've been watching the Disney series Loki, it always reminds me of my son talking about Loki and his glorious purposes. But we know that the glorious purposes actually rest in Jesus Christ himself. And when we abide in the word of God, we develop ultimately God's heart. For Jesus, for the things of the kingdom and the people of this world that Jesus Christ came to save through his death, burial, and resurrection at the cross. 
At the same time, what we know is that Jesus understands. He understands that as we abide in his word, it can be difficult to be faithful to him in the midst of a hostile world. Because just as the people of Jesus' time rejected and ultimately crucified Jesus because he declared that what they were doing was evil and separating them from God at the time, and Jesus came as a warning to turn them in repentance from the evil that they were doing in the world and turn to him for forgiveness of their sins that they might be cleansed and come back into relationship with God before the judgment. In the same way, he knows that as his followers live according to the truth of that word, and not only live according to the truth of that word, but also proclaim that word to others that they might be saved, it at times can turn the world who is hearing that word in hostility to Jesus' followers, even as in Jesus' time, the people who were hearing Christ's words were hostile towards him. And it can be a difficult thing to stand in the midst of that hostility. But God, through this high priestly prayer, is saying that through God's word, through this high priestly prayer, God's word helps to deliver us from evil. What do I mean by that? Well, as we abide in God's word, God keeps us from the evil that is in the world that is opposed to his word and is hostile to those who cling to that word. We know that ultimately, if we've turned to God, what that means is we're now living for his pleasure. And if you have been hearing the word of God, but have not yet turned in repentance from your sin to the living God, but think that you have a relationship with him, what you are right now is fooling yourself. Because as Paul talked to Timothy about by the Holy Spirit in 1 Timothy, he said God's solid foundation, 2 Timothy rather, he said this, God's solid foundation remains firm, sealed with this inscription, that the Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who talk, calls upon the name of the Lord expecting salvation must turn away from wickedness. So meaning that though we may be fooling others and though we may be fooling ourselves, if we're still living in drunkenness, adultery, um, sexual immorality, if we're still gossiping, slandering, uh, being a swindler of any type, all of these things stand opposed to God, his holiness, his goodness, and his word. And God knows those who are his. We're not, though we can fool others and even ourselves at times, we don't fool God. And what God's saying is, I've given you my word to turn you from these evil things, to sanctify you, set you apart to myself, and bring you back into relationship with me through the work that Jesus did on the cross, which ultimately, as we've talked about in this series, comes to set us free. And as we abide in God's word, God keeps us from the evil that is in this world that is opposed to his word and is hostile to those who cling to that word. So what, is the, what was Jesus focusing on in John 17 and that high priestly prayer? Well, Jesus' high priestly prayer teaches us at least three key principles to guide us in the midst of hostile times to ultimately keep us from the evil that's in the world. Number one. What are those three things? Number one, the word of God is the only reliable source of strength when we face the rejection of the world. 
I know that many of you who've come to Christ have actually experienced rejection from family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors, social media interactions because you've chosen to stand for what God says is right as opposed to what the world says is right. But what God's high priestly prayer, what Jesus' high priestly prayer reminds us is that the word of God is the only reliable source of strength when we face the rejection of the world. What it means is that Christ reveals that he himself needed the words the Father gave to him just as we needed it. That when Christ was about to go to the cross and face the rejection of the world of his times, the thing that kept him was the promise of the Father. The promise that, yes, he would be crucified and suffer according to even the words of Isaiah 52 and 53. He would be the suffering servant who would be the savior of the world. But ultimately, that in his death, he would provide not only life for the world, meaning you and I, but that he would be raised to life again. That after the suffering of his soul, he would see life eternal and provide eternal life for those who would believe in and follow him. And so Jesus himself clung to the words of the Father to strengthen him in the midst of hostility and persecution so that he might continue to march forward in the purposes of God. And what we must understand is that there are schemes of the enemy, meaning Satan himself, the devil himself, to discourage and dissuade you and me, the people of God, in the midst of our walks with God. But what we also see is that Christ sees something we need to recognize. That if we believe what he says and do what he commands, we will be hated. That's what Jesus talked about in John 17. He said that if you cling to his words and are not of this world, even as Jesus is not of it, he said the world will hate you because of that. And the enemy will use that hatred to try to shake you, to shake you in your faith, to shake you in your love for God, to shake you in your devotion to God. Because no one likes being rejected. No one likes being unpopular. No one likes actually having anyone say that something that they are doing or the way they're living is displeasing. But what we've got to remember as Christians is the one that we are ultimately called to please before anyone else is God Almighty. God Almighty revealed through Jesus, his son, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. The clue to the gospel, though, is rejection and hostility do not have to derail us. Sometimes greater resistance is actually a sign that we're getting closer to our goal. And the enemy of our souls can only win if resistance causes us to back down, to give in, to grow bitter towards other people who resist God and his ways, and to change sides. To ultimately say, you know what, I can't take this persecution, I'm going to fit in with the world rather than to be called out by God and actually belong to him and ultimately receive the promise that he says I'll receive as I cling to him, his word and his ways. Let me tell you, it costs you something to be a follower of Jesus. But Jesus says that whoever acknowledges me before this world that is even hostile to him, he will acknowledge before his father in heaven. 
but whoever rejects or tries to hide their devotion to Jesus in this world, he'll ultimately disown before his Father in heaven when he comes in his glory. The resolution that we need to have is this, that when we press through resistance with faithfulness to the word, God's victory is ultimately ensured in our lives. Why? Not just because of our own strength, but because of Christ and that prayer that he prayed, not just for his early disciples, but for you and for me as we've chosen to believe and trust in his words. If Christ needed the words of the Father, though, this is why we need to abide in the word of God. If Christ himself needed the words of the Father, how much more do we? And Christ makes it clear that he gave those words to the disciples so that they would be preserved. If the apostles needed the words of Christ, again, how much more do we? What we need to understand is that philosophies change, self-help gurus come and go, and governments rise and fall. But God's word remains the same, God's ways remain the same, and God's mission remains the same because God himself never changes and he's revealed to us who he is through his word. That's the first thing that God's word shows us. The second big thing is that the words of Christ in the midst of hostility, the words of Christ guide us when the presence of Christ is hidden. Verses 11 through 13, John 17, 11 through 13, really focus in on that. And what we need to do when it feels like in the midst of hostility, it's hard to see or know or experience Christ. What that means is that you need to spend time with God to be guided with his word when it seems like his presence is hidden in the midst of hostility. You need to internalize the word so that it goes with you throughout your day. And you need to search your life to find any area that is not surrendered to the word so that in the time of testing, you might be able to stand against the evil, the resistance that's coming against you. You will have the strength to do it if you've already made the decision ahead of time. It doesn't matter what temptation comes my way. I know that I'm going to stand because I'm committed to God's word. As an example, I had to travel quite a bit before coming to Chicago for my uh, work and ministry. And I knew that there would be temptations on the road. And lo and behold, when I was on the road, even on mission trips, preaching the gospel of Christ, there were offers to commit adulterous acts with other people who we were ministering to in the mission field. And nobody would have known, nobody would have seen except God himself who was watching every action and every word that was coming off of my lips. And the only way that I was able to stand out under the temptation of committing adulterous acts was that I had the word of God living in my heart. Yes, I love my wife and I want to be devoted to my wife and my family. But even more than that is the love and the fear of God. 
and I had to decide ahead of time before ever getting into those situations that I was going to obey God's word so that when the time of evil and testing came, I was already set apart and sanctified and my decision had already been made. I was already ready to answer with obedience and faith in God's word rather than stumbling into that sin. And that's the power of God's word to keep you in the times of testing, trial, and the evil that's what, um, that comes against us. And that's why John 17, 19, Jesus said, and for their sake, I consecrate myself. I set myself apart for all those who would come after Jesus. He said, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And I knew that when I was choosing to obey God's word, it wasn't just for me, but it was for my wife, it was for my family, it was for my children and for all the church who would come after us. I consecrate myself along with the Lord that others might be sanctified in the truth as well. And so your abiding in the word matters not just for you, but for all who will come after you in Jesus' name. This is what Jesus showed us by his high priestly prayer. But the third thing that it ultimately shows us is that Christ is not just trying to keep and sanctify us, but he's also trying to send us. Remember, I said that when you abide in the word of God, you develop God's heart for Jesus, for the world and the kingdom of God and the people in this world that he came to save. That God's heart becomes your heart as you dwell in his word. And the third thing we discover is that as we abide in Christ's word, he sanctifies us to send us on mission with him. And the world's resistance is often a sign that we are closer to the mission of the word. Christianity's missional effectiveness is dependent ultimately on a simple formula. It begins with a surprising faithfulness to the word of God mixed with great difficulty in which people stand on that word. And so that surprising faithfulness in great difficulty, the people of God standing in the midst of that great difficulty equals ultimately a new belief in the word of God by the onlookers who watch the people standing in the word in the midst of that trial and difficulty. We see that over and over again throughout history. It started in the book of Exodus when the people of God were uh, enslaved under the Egyptian rule. And the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. That was only a foreshadowing of the book of Acts, that the more persecution came against the early church, the more the power of God was with them, and they were able to multiply the gospel in the hostile Roman Empire that didn't yet know the Lord. We see that even today in the underground churches that exist in persecuted nations throughout the world, that the more that the body of Christ is persecuted, the more the word spreads because the promises of God are solidified in the hearts of Christians who are looking to Jesus and his power. And as he moves in signs, wonders, and miracles confirming his word, what we see is that many people come to believe in the midst of that faithfulness that they display 
modeling Christ's faithfulness himself, going all the way to the cross, not loving his life so much as to shrink back from death because he had the promise of the Father that not only would he be crucified, but he would be raised. And the very thing that Christians are called to today is to live in the resurrection life of God, to take up their cross daily and follow Jesus. And though there may be hostility and though there may be a daily death, no matter physically or even metaphorically, what we see is we can rise in the resurrection life of God. And that's good news to you and me. So the question is, what difficulty is God asking you to face with surprising faithfulness? And what would surprising faithfulness look like in the face of that difficulty? What scriptures really could you could guide you to stay faithful in the midst of that difficulty? Well, I will tell you that I've experienced challenges and difficulties of many types throughout my life, but as I've stood on the Word of God and allowed the Word of God and the promises of God to be my anchor, and friends and family members and church members and others, mentors, have done the same, all that's come about, all that's come about is not only our good, but also the continuation and the propagation of the gospel which is saved, set free, and seen other people's lives forever change for God's glory and ultimately their good. So what we need to do is, as the people of God, because of Jesus' high priestly prayer, we need to rethink the rejection of the world as a sign that we are not of it, but are sent into it. We're not of it, but are sent into it. There was actually an old itinerant preacher who, it's a funny story, used to go around ministering the gospel when the, um, uh, when the West was being settled in um, earlier times in American history. And what he did is he knew that Christ said, woe to you when all men speak well of you, but blessed are you whenever they persecute you, reject your name as evil, and say all types of false things against you, because that's how they treated the prophets back in the day when they were aligned with God. And there was one period of time that this itinerant preacher was riding along. He hadn't experienced any type of persecution for a period of time. And he was so forlorn because he knew Christ's words about persecution that he went behind a bush and began to pray and cried out to God, Oh God, why have you left me? He took that as a sign of God actually not being with him or being displeased with him. And in that moment, somebody at a distance heard him crying out and threw a rock that struck <laughs> the itinerant preacher in the head. In response, the itinerant preacher cried out, Oh God, thank you that once again you've returned to me because he equated the fact that he was receiving some resistance to the fact that he was getting closer to the goal of God. Now that's a funny story, but the truth is, is that it is a good sign when there is resistance. There is a good sign when people aren't always speaking well of you because you're taking your stand on Christ, his words, and his holiness. If everyone was in agreement with you, then you would not be in agreement with Jesus. Because Jesus said, they cannot accept you. They, cannot, they accept you, but they can't accept me because I testified that what they do is evil. And I'm trying to deliver them from that evil. 
But as God's trying to deliver people from that evil, it often brings that resistance. So we need to rethink the rejection of the world as a sign that you're not of it, but are sent into it. And you need to, number two, prayerfully consider what kind of suffering might cause you to give in to the enemy. You need to think, what kind of suffering is it in my life that would cause me to give in to the enemy? And we need to surrender three, those areas of potential missional sacrifice to God. We need to surrender those areas so that when the time, not if, but when times of testing come in our lives, whether it's relational, whether it's health, whether it's financial, or whether it's just objection to the values that you hold dear to your heart because God gave them to you by his word. You need to surrender all those areas of potential missional sacrifice to God ahead of time so that not if but when the time of testing comes, you might stand. That is what Christ gives us in his prayer, praying for us, and it's what he gives us the understanding of through his word. So the question is, have you been avoiding mission in Jesus for fear of resistance? Have you avoided sharing the good news of Jesus with others because you've been scared of how they might respond to you? The disciples did too, and they soon scattered when Jesus was arrested and crucified, brought to trial, and then ultimately killed on the cross. But when they returned, meaning when the disciples returned, he strengthened them with his Holy Spirit and once again with his word, saying, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you by this word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what we need to do is get back on mission with Christ as well. No matter where we've been, we need to abide in his word to number one, be delivered of evil, but then number two, sent to a world that so desperately needs the word of God that they might be sanctified, set apart to him, and ultimately saved by his cross, death, burial, and resurrection in Jesus' name. So will you do that with me today? Let's end with a word of prayer. My Almighty God, I do just pray for my brothers and sisters today. And I thank you that you've given them your word so that you might sanctify them, set them apart in the truth, your word being truth. And God, I pray that in this face of persecution and resistance, that they would have the strength to cling to your promises, to cling to your truths, and ultimately to stand in you. God, I pray that they would have more of a love for you and your word than really the approval of the world. And that through that love for you, that they might also develop your heart in love for the other people that you've come to save in the world. And that you may empower and baptize your people with the power of the Holy Spirit. That they might be witnesses and be on mission with you. Proclaiming your good news to this world who so desperately needs you. And for anyone today who says, you know what? I have never submitted my life to Jesus. I know that I've been fooling myself and sometimes fooling others, but God's not fooled. I've never turned away from the evil that I've lived in. And I know if I were to stand before God today, I would receive his judgment and his punishment, just punishment in hell. But I don't want it and I want to turn to Jesus today. If that's you, would you pray this prayer with me? Almighty God, I admit to you today that I'm a sinner. And I admit to you that I've lived in rebellion to your word and your ways. 
And I'm asking you today, God, to forgive me of my sins. I believe that you sent Jesus to live the perfect life I should have lived and on the cross died the sacrificial death that I should have died. And three days later, you raised him from the dead so that not only could I have forgiveness of sins, but new life in him. God, would you make me a new creation today? And God, would you help me to follow you through your word and love you as you've loved me? I proclaim Jesus my Lord and ask you to make me a servant of yours, faithfully pleasing you the rest of my days. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the good news is if you prayed that prayer, God said he's made you a new creation. So would you go with me to our website, secondcitychurch.com slash newlife. There you can find not only resources, but next steps of how to walk out this new life in and through God's word. He loves you. He set you apart to himself. And so now let's go back into worship, honoring the one that's loved us so in Jesus' name.